Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Being grateful is good for you. You know this from experience. When do you feel better? When you have just spent half of an hour griping about the weather or about your in-laws or when you have personally thanked someone for their friendship or thanked God for the beauties of nature, when do you feel better? The distance between a good day and a bad day is not actually as great as you might think. It's usually just a few steps of gratitude. A joyful spirit is good medicine, says the biblical proverb, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Not that we need this confirmation, but scientists today agree with this. There was one study in which 400 participants were tested for happiness, however you do that, after they performed several activities. And there was one activity that rose above all the others that produced the greatest amount of happiness for the longest period of time among these 400 persons. You know what it was? Writing and delivering a thank you letter. One neuroscientist who specializes in gratitude out in California said this, benefits associated with gratitude include better sleep, would you like that? More exercise, reduce symptoms of physical pain, lower levels of inflammation, lower blood pressure, and a host of other things we associate with better health. Some question as to what causes which, but they are associated. Being grateful is good for you. But much more importantly, you being grateful is good for others. You've been commanded by your master to be, and you've been told that you are, a light like a city set up on a hill or like a lamp up on a lampstand. And Jesus has commanded, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There is almost nothing that will immediately make you stand out in a positive way to others more that you could easily implement this week than giving thanks and not grumbling. There are some people who grumble no matter what the circumstance is, but it is not this way among you. It's actually just the opposite. Rejoice always, Paul tells the Thessalonians and you. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Pick any break room in any of your places of employment. Walk in there. And probably people are grumbling about the weather. It's too cold. It's too hot. Or it's just right, but it's not going to last. <laughs> pick your, take your pick. Anything. The grumbling is happening about coworkers, about bosses, about each other, about your work circumstances, about the nation and the news. And if you go in that workplace and you simply don't grumble, you stand out. But even more than that, if you interject a genuine and simple comment that is grateful for what is good in the world and in your life and in your work, you're like a scented candle that you've just lit in that workplace so musky and odorous. 
you provide for others something good. Being grateful is not just good for you, it's good for others. The one passage in the Bible that says this more clearly than any other is the passage that we come to today in Paul's letter to the Philippians. He's going to command them, he commands you, never, never to grumble. No exceptions. But he gives a reason in the verses that follow from that first verse in verse 14 follows it with a that. There's a purpose to it. And the purpose to you not grumbling, but instead being grateful, is for others. Let's see that in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Here's the purpose. Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I, Paul, may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Here, a grateful apostle commands you also to be grateful. Think about how many of Paul's letters begin like this. I thank my God. Do you remember the beginning even of this letter? Chapter 1. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. That's verse 3. It was a convention in the ancient world to give your thanks as you begin a letter. But I promise you, Paul meant that sincerely. It wasn't just a convention. And I'm very glad this morning that Paul, and not someone else, is our example of gratitude. He's the one commanding it and presenting himself as an example of it. I'm grateful because we're always tempted when someone is uppity and happy and optimistic to think they're only that way because their life is easy. Let me tell you who Paul is and in what circumstances he's thanking God and being grateful. Here's his own account. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. People throw rocks at you until you're dead. He survived. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And he starts his letter, I thank my God for you. Paul was grateful because it's right to be grateful, but as we'll see, he was also grateful for your sake. He was grateful for the sake of others, because being grateful is not just good for you. Being grateful is good for others. We're going to see that in our text, that being grateful is good for others first. It's good for those who are 
outside the church. But secondly, it's good for those who are within the church. Outside the church, inside the church, that's everybody. You being a grateful person is good for everybody. Let's see that in the passage, beginning with how it is good to be grateful for those who are outside the church. Return to the text and see just beginning here. There's the command, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Here's the purpose, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of, here's outside the church, a crooked and twisted generation among whom, unbelievers, among them, you, if you don't grumble, you shine as lights in the world, holding fast or holding forth the word of life. Now this passage is remarkable all by itself, but it's actually more remarkable than you probably think it is because almost every phrase in this entire passage is language drawn from the Old Testament. We know the Apostle Paul had his Pharisaic studies under Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He was a very well-educated Jewish man. He knew the Tanakh, the Old Testament scriptures, very, very well. So what he does in this passage is he continually, line after line, borrows language from the Old Testament, not always using it exactly as the Old Testament did, which we'll talk about in a second, but that's what he's doing in this passage. So if you think about the Old Testament, and you think of this idea of grumbling that he's speaking of, where in the Old Testament do we find the most concentrated examples of grumbling? The wilderness. You can almost hear it if you listen close to your Bible. It still grumbles when you get to those early chapters, the early books of the Bible. The grumbling that you read of again and again and again through Exodus and Deuteronomy as the children of Israel literally just freed from enslavement for hundreds of years by their miraculous display of God's power in the plagues. They come out from the land of captivity rejoicing with Miriam. They are singing their songs and playing their tambourine. But Exodus 16.2 gives us a good summary of what the next 40 years will look like for them when it says, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. This is what's on Paul's mind when he commands you not to do this. I'll give you just a Snippet of the grumblings of the people. You remember this. The people leave the miracle of the Red Sea. And do you know how many days they get before they grumble? <laughs> Three days. Three days. How far did you get into your Christmas vacation before you grumbled? So don't laugh at them. Maybe, maybe you got two. Three days they go into the wilderness and they realize there's no water. And it says, quote, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Like children in the backseat on a long trip. <laughs> They make it then another month after God gives them water before they grumble again. This time there's no food. And we read, quote, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. God gives them food. A little while later, they're thirsty again. Quote, they grumbled against Moses and at this point they almost stoned him to death. Don't take people's food and their water. That's three strikes and they hadn't even reached Mount Sinai yet. After they reach Sinai, are given a law, make this close covenant with God, they leave. 
Mount Sinai, they reached the cusp of the land of promise, which God was freely, graciously giving to them. Now is the time to be grateful, if any time, but they're not. And instead, when the spies return and say, whoa, that land is filled with strong people and strong cities, the people grumble again, the whole generation of them. And because of their grumbling, God sends them back out into the wilderness for 40 years until the whole generation should die. That's why Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, as you may remember, says that the Israelites in this were an example to us so that we would not, quote, grumble as some of the Israelites did and were destroyed by the destroyer, the whole generation. So they head away from the promised land because of their grumbling, and not long afterward, they grumble now against Moses' leadership. Who made you a leader over us? So God judges them, kills a bunch of them, the rest of the people come, and they grumble that God killed a bunch of the people. (laughs) Literally, it's always grumbling. The Greek word in our text, which is related to this verb, gongudzo, or gongudzomai, it's onomatopoetic. You know what that means? It's like bam, bang. It's a word that also sounds like what it means. So, gongudzomai. You can hear it. Just like the English word grumble, 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 grumble. You hear that? Is that what grumbling sounds like? It's like a squeaking wheel that's passing through the wilderness with Israel, very obnoxious, very annoying. And in our text, you can notice too how it's not just grumbling that's forbidden. There's another word there, disputing. Those are closely related. You know, if you know someone who's a grumbler, don't look at them right now, but if you know someone who's a grumbler, you know they also get in fights with people. They're contentious. Why is this? Because if you're grumbling, nothing's good enough. So you will be upset at leadership because the leadership's never doing enough. They're never doing it right. They're not doing it how you would do it if you were in their position. So you will grumble about it and you fight. Other people, believers in the church who are sitting around you, if you're a grumbler, then you lack this gratitude. So other people are all messed up and they're the source of all of your problems if they could just get their act together. So when you talk with them, you fight, you dispute. And unbelievers in the world, don't even get me started, they're the people who are ruining the entire culture. So if you grumble, then when you meet them out in public, you hate them, you fight them, you yell at them, you say unkind things. So he puts those together. I mean, you might even get to the point of Balaam in the Old Testament. He was disputing with his own donkey. (laughs) You grumble, you might start fighting inanimate objects, everything's a problem, nothing is good enough. It's that sort of a spirit or attitude, grumbling that produces disputing. So you can see that. So Paul puts them together, helpfully for us in the text. And he says, you're not allowed to do either of those things. Now you might wonder, how do we know for sure that Paul has Israel in mind when he talks about grumbling? Well, if verse 14 is not enough, that verb there, look at verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Let me read you a passage from Moses' famous song in Deuteronomy 32. Moses says about the children of Israel in the wilderness, he says this, the people of Israel have dealt corruptly with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. 
Paul borrowed like all of that language. That's what he's borrowing. Children, blemished, crooked, twisted, and the Greek translation of the Old Testament in common use in Paul's day, the Septuagint, uses the same Greek words in our passage. So these are identical. These phraseologies identical in Deuteronomy 32.5 here with what we find in our passage. Paul is borrowing the language from Moses' song to express something to us. Even if he's using it a little bit differently, he's definitely in his mind referring back to the Israelites who were in the wilderness, just like Moses was talking about. The point of what Moses said in Deuteronomy 32 here is that the children of Israel, they were not all true believers in God. Paul makes that point in Romans very clearly. Not everyone who is descended from Abraham is truly a child of God in this way. We see, in fact, that most Israelites in the Old Testament were not genuine believers in God. They did not walk in his commandments. When the law of Moses came, it didn't save them. It actually just showed how bad they were, how much they needed saving. And so what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 32 is God says they're not, they're not God's children, meaning they're not acting like children of God. And those who are not true believers, God rejects. And they were demonstrating they were not children by being what? Blemished. Moses actually calls the Israelites the crooked and twisted generation. Now Paul is using this language a little bit differently, of course, because he's referring to Christians. Many of us are not Jewish. We're not of the people of Israel. But he's using some of the same language. He's saying that if you as a Christian keep yourself from grumble, 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 just like the Israelites were doing, don't do that. If you don't do that, then you show yourself to be a genuine child of God, blameless and innocent, and in the middle of a crooked and twisted generation, meaning the pagans around you. So he's using the language that referred to Israel, but he's referring to pagan Philippi. That's the crooked and twisted generation he's talking about. What Moses said of the unbelieving Jews, Paul is saying of unbelieving pagans in the midst of a crooked, twisted generation. I don't at all mean, largely because of Paul, I don't at all mean, and I don't at all think this passage means, that non-Jewish Christians have basically just taken over for Israel. And Israel's kicked out, they didn't do it well enough, and now the non Israel people are in, and that's the end of the story. Even though Paul's using some language that was for Israel now to other people who are not Jewish, it doesn't mean he thinks that Israel's gone and we or whoever have replaced them. Paul actually has a more nuanced view of the relationship of Jewish and non-Jewish. You can see it in Romans 9 through 11, and it's basically that God has partially hardened the Jewish people to reject their Messiah so that he might show mercy to us who are non-Jewish, so that the Jewish people, not kicked out, forget you, but can look at us Gentiles who are believing in their Messiah and be drawn to jealousy so that they then are attracted to Christ. And Paul says, thus, all Israel will be saved. So I think there is a future for ethnic Israel. So don't see Paul's use of this language as negating that. It's not what he's doing here. But he is borrowing language that was originally for Israel, kind of reversing it, 
and applying it to Gentiles. It's a little complicated, but the main thing is just that Paul is so immersed in the scriptures, and may you and I be, that when he expresses ideas, he's using even language from the scriptures. In fact, it's not just from Deuteronomy 32. The rest of our passage here is from Daniel chapter 12, when he says, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, Daniel 12, besides Genesis 1, is the only other place this Greek word lights appears in the Greek Old Testament. And there, it's talking about the righteous and the wise who, when Christ returns, will shine like lights and turn many people away from sin. So Paul is borrowing language from Deuteronomy 32. He's borrowing language from Daniel 12, even though it hasn't happened yet. So when you talk, borrow language from Scripture. It's a great idea. Paul did it. You should do it. The point of what Paul is saying so far is, that brothers and sisters, you live in a crooked, twisted generation. It was true of the Philippians in Philippi, and it's true of you as well. But here's the thing. You still get to choose how you respond to living in the midst of a crooked, twisted generation. It's not like you have no choice. It's not like I have to grumble about this culture because it's going to Hades in a handbasket and there's nothing I can do. And when I watch the news, it's miserable and therefore I will grumble. That's our natural feeling. And I feel it with you. I get it. We want to grumble because it gives us some sense of control. I don't know. I don't know why we do it. It makes us miserable. But you have a choice. You know, just because everyone else may respond to what's happening in the world that way, you don't have to. You literally don't have to do that. You may not be able to turn the tide of our whole nation toward righteousness, but you can be righteous. Like righteous Lot, tormented in his soul. You can be righteous. You don't have to grumble. You can adorn the doctrine of God by not grumbling about what's happening in the crooked, twisted generation. Notice that Paul takes for granted. That's the generation, he says, really not just Philippi, every generation of Christians will live in a crooked, twisted generation. It's always been true because of the corruption in the world by Adam. So if the world looks so bleak and dark today, it has always been bleak and dark. It was back then, it is today. Listen, the Philippian Christians who originally heard these words Paul wrote didn't even have a Christian heritage. There's literally no Judeo-Christian background at all. You may wish there was a stronger Judeo-Christian influence in the culture today, but at least there is one. When Paul writes to the Philippians, their background are pagan deities, immoral, capricious. That's the background. Homer. That's what they had in the background. And therefore, as you might imagine, the whole culture was given to sexual immorality, to all kinds of prostitution, even as a part of their religion. Abortion was not something that we created. It was present in the Roman Empire. This was a crooked and a twisted generation. The Roman Empire itself conquered other innocent peoples, came in and just killed whoever didn't want them there and took over and taxed them. That's crooked. That's twisted. That's perverted. That's where they lived. The politicians of that day were not all innocent, nice, and good. There was corruption there too. 
But what are you going to do about it? You live in a day like that. You can grumble your way through the wilderness, join with them. You can do that if you want to, I suppose. But if you choose grumbling, which Paul forbids, if you choose to just look like everybody else in this culture, you become part of the problem (laughs) of why it's a crooked and twisted generation. You realize you contribute to that problem. You become crooked and twisted as well. Instead of being part of the solution to the problem, which is what God wants you to be, you can do all things, all things, without grumbling or disputing and therefore look different from the rest of the culture. You can choose, if you want, I guess, to be grim and dark and morose about everything that's happening. But then how are you lights in the world? That's Paul's concern. So that you may be lights in the world. The world is dark. But you are lights. Holding fast to the word of life, which also probably means holding forth the word that gives life. Here you are. If you're spending your whole time complaining about all of the problems, you don't have time to be talking about all of the solutions. This is what we're excited about, the Bible. We should care about politics. Please do care about politics and vote and be involved. It's wonderful. But it's not our life. If that's your life, you're going to have a miserable life. There's no promise that everything will turn out well there. But as Christians, there is a promise that everything turns out well in God's history. Big picture. And this is what we're excited about. And we hold forward this word of life. So much of the grass is dead when you look at the world and our country. So why go out and kill whatever grass is still alive by grumbling and making everyone more miserable? There's no need to do that, including yourself. You can either grumble with your voice or you can use your voice to sing praises to God who works all things together for good for those who love him, who turns the affliction of Joseph into the salvation of his brothers. That's the God we are serving, and you can sing his praises, but not while you're grumbling. It makes for ugly music. Being grateful in that way will be good for others. That's what Paul is saying. If you don't grumble, you don't dispute, you will be blameless, just like a pure sacrifice of the Old Testament. You will be innocent. You will be a true child of God. You will stand out, and you will... Be like a bright light in a dark place. You know that if you turn a flashlight on during the daytime, pretty much nothing happens. But if you turn a flashlight on when it's pitch dark, everything happens. Everything is illuminated. The brightness of the flashlight, which hasn't changed, is now much more visible. The same is true of you. You shine as a light in a dark world. So don't turn off the flashlight because, oh, it's so dark. No, that's when you turn on the flashlight. That's when you stop grumbling and complaining like everyone else and you express gratitude to God, gratitude to others. You stop infighting. You show yourself a child of a God who is a God of peace and of grace and mercy. You demonstrate that because then it means a lot more than if, as we wish, everyone else was also righteous. That would be great but you wouldn't stand out. Paul says, in this crooked, twisted generation, you shine as lights in the world. You wouldn't do that if it wasn't a crooked and twisted generation. So stop complaining about it being so crooked and twisted. 
It's that way. You want to help it? No more grumbling, no more disputing. That's what Paul says. That will help. If you are grateful, that will be good, not just for you, that will be good for those outside the church because it'll be different and they will hopefully be drawn to the word that you're holding forth for them and find life. So being grateful is good for others, those outside the church, but now we have to turn and see how being grateful is good for those inside the church. Paul's our example of this second point, beginning in verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I grumble. <laughs> nope. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is again pulling on his knowledge of the Old Testament, this time the sacrificial system. So essential a part of your Old Testament. You'll find it in every book. You'll find it everywhere. That God required of his people at that time sacrifices, animal sacrifices, which were to prepare them to receive the one great sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God. But in the Old Testament, as they were waiting, there were animal sacrifices. And that's what Paul is pulling on here. Many of the sacrifices, if you get to Leviticus in your Bible reading, you'll find that many of the animal sacrifices that the priests offered in the temple were to be accompanied by a drink offering. You bring the animal, you kill the animal, and you take wine, and you pour it over the animal. So you're not just offering the animal, now you're offering drink offering. Sometimes there's also a grain offering or a wave offering, but a drink offering is very common. So what Paul is doing here is he's using this picture to tell them this. He's looking at the Philippian believers and their service and their co-laboring in the gospel as if they were priests. This is the best we can do. It's actually a little tough to tell exactly how he's using the metaphor, but I think this is it. He's looking at them, you believers, as if you are a priest, you come into the temple, and here is your animal that you sacrifice, and that animal is your service to God, your suffering for the gospel, your love and service toward each other, holding fast the word of life, all of this. You are like a priest in the temple making that sacrifice. You lay it there, the animal dies. And Paul is saying that he may be like the drink offering that the priest takes after he's killed the animal, and pours it out on top. Pours it out and it gets burnt up in the fire and it's gone. He says, even if I am to be a drink offering, I rejoice. He's probably, for himself, as a pouring out, referring to his own possible martyrdom. We see this in 2 Timothy. The only other time he uses this picture, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. That's later. Right here, we know that the time of Paul's departure had not come. He wrestled with that back in chapter 1 and concluded he's probably not going to be martyred right away. But what he's saying here is even if he were, even if his life was taken and poured out to complete their service to the Lord, 
Even if he died, even if a Roman blade severed his head from his body, he would not grumble. He would have joy. They came and pronounced the sentence, you're to be taken away and your head, head removed. Well, then you would think, at least he has some reason to grumble now. <laughs> this is very unfair treatment for someone dedicated to serving God. He said, if, even if that happened, I would rejoice that I'm considered worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. The end of chapter one, you saw that? To you, it's been granted to suffer for the sake of Christ. And that's how he views it. No grumbling, joy. Paul is, and may we be, a lot like an old dusty rug. You take it outside, you get some kind of spoon or ladle, and you start beating it, and what happens? All this dust that you couldn't see before puffs out like a big cloud around it. And if it's really dirty, you just keep beating it, and it seems like endlessly clouds of dust keep coming and coming out of this. That's what Paul is like. The Roman Empire had taken him, put him in prison, and were beating him, and it's like joy just kept coming. <laughs> Gratitude just kept coming. They beat him, take away his freedoms. And he says, wow, I just thank my God that this has all turned out for the advancement of the gospel. No grumbling. You see that in Paul? If anyone had reason to, it's him. In fact, the only thing that's really troubling Paul, he says it here, the only thing that's really even troubling him or that concerns him is the possibility that they might abandon the faith. It's not even earthly concerns. It's not his 401k or retirement plans or his house or his bank account. None of those things. She doesn't have those things. The only thing that's really concerning him in this text is that he wants to, at the day of Christ, quote, be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He wants them to hold true to the word of life and not forsake it. Whatever agonies he had to experience to ensure that outcome, whatever he had to do in their service, he was in prison for proclaiming the gospel to Gentiles. Whatever he had to do, it's totally fine by him. That's what he's saying. Listen, even if they cut off my head, Whatever I've got to do to serve God by serving you, to make sure you're doing well spiritually, that's fine. I'm, I'm glad. I mean, I'm not going to grumble. I'm not going to complain about that. I am glad to do that. That's what he's saying. Now, I know that we four elders who are appointed over this local church, we are so far removed from Paul. <laughs> We're not in prison. I got no shackles. Nobody's threatened to cut off my head. No, that's true of the other elders too. But when I look at these other three elders that you have, Micah, Dan, and Justin, they are in a very real sense, week after week, being continually poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, just as Paul was for the Philippians. If you think about it, we pay them close to nothing or nothing. <laughs> and what they have signed up for is to be sad as they carry your griefs. They have signed up to add extra suffering on top of just the normal suffering of life. These elders have signed up to lose sleep, to lose their appetites when things get difficult as they're laboring together with you and living your life with you. They've signed up to be special targets of the devil. And they say, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering, I am so glad, and I rejoice. And you, hey, you too, be glad and rejoice with me. Could they complain? Sure. 
Have you heard them complain? I've not heard them complain. They signed up to serve, to suffer. It's as if what Jesus had said about Paul was true for them. I will show them how much they must suffer for the sake of my name. They could go about sulking. They could go about grumbling at the afflictions that are theirs. They could go lashing out quickly, disputing with each other and anyone who treats them poorly. But they don't. They say, looking at all the work that they've added on top of the work that they're already doing, wow, I am glad. I am grateful. And I rejoice. And you rejoice with me too. They do all their labors among us without grumbling or disputing. They do it with joy. And they call you through the scriptures to join in imitating them. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You should choose joy over misery. Gratitude over grumbling. And not just because of their labors or Paul's labors, but you can also take this as a personal example. No matter if you have some official leadership in the church or not, I think you can take Paul's attitude and definitely apply it to yourself. You are all serving each other, and how are you doing it? Grumbling or gratitude? Two very different ways to serve each other. You may be laboring for the good of others. You're bringing meals. You're checking in. You're helping. Sunday morning, you're involved. You're doing all of these things, and you're losing sleep maybe even. You're fatigued, you're tired, you had to get up extra early to get here on a Sunday morning to serve other people. Do you sometimes labor for others and find that instead of the gratitude you think that they should feel, they actually turn around and rebuke you and snub you? <laughs> well, well, that's not fair, I'm serving you. Are you taken for granted as you serve each other? Do you go unacknowledged for things that you probably should be acknowledged for? Money you've given, sacrifices you've made? You're going to be tempted to grumble in serving each other. This is not fair. And guess what? It's probably not fair. But the command still stands. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. We are serving each other, like Paul, in the light of the day of Christ. Not in the light of today. So if today you don't get the acknowledgement you're hoping for, or today the church isn't going exactly the way you were hoping it was going to go direction-wise, or there's a program that's not happening or is happening you'd rather not happen. Today, if that's happening, that's not our focus primarily. Our focus is in light of the day of Christ. Even if I'm poured out, in light of the day of Christ. So we can snub each other. Let's try not to do that. But if it happens, it happens. And you can go on serving each other. If you have a grumbling spirit, a snub, and you're done. You know what? Forget it. You did all this for them, and they didn't even say thank you and didn't send you a thank you note. Forget it. You're not doing that ever again. That's a grumbling, disputing spirit. You serve. You're not acknowledged. You say, you know what? I know my service has done them well. So even if I'm poured out as a drink offering, oh, I am glad, I rejoice. If only I may labor and run in a way that's not in vain, that they may be built up and obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. Not grumbling, but grateful. Being grateful is not just good for you, 
It's good for others. And it's not just good for those outside the church. It's good for those who are inside the church. Being grateful, like all forms of godliness, has value in every way. It's good for you. It's good for others. So family of God, look, I didn't say it. The Bible said it. No more grumbling. I'm doing it with you. No more grumbling. No more disputing. We make that choice. And we are choosing, no matter how dark everything around us gets, in the culture, even people around you, no matter how dark it's getting, you are choosing to turn up the light, not down the light. You're not lying about things that are good. You're not being Pollyanna. You're choosing to focus on the things that actually are good. You've got air conditioning in your cars. I mean, your great-great-grandmother couldn't even imagine. Did she even have a car? I don't know. Couldn't even imagine that possibility. And as you drive home in your nice air-conditioned or heated car today, not freezing at your extremities, but very comfortable, maybe don't grumble about the bad gas mileage that car gets. <laughs> not grumbling, but grateful. If you have to do something practical to make this a part of your life, and many of us do, if you need to start a gratitude journal that you write in every night, three things you're grateful for, go ahead and do it. Can't hurt you. Or if in the evening or in the morning, when you first wake up, you are committed to think of one thing you're grateful for before you get out of bed, why don't you go ahead and do that? That habit will build up. Whatever you have to do to be a light, not darkness, you need to do that. And if your suffering is so great, and for some it is, that you can hardly think of an earthly blessing that you have, then at least remember this. Every month we participate in the Eucharist, another name for communion, and Eucharist means to give thanks. It's a time we remember and give thanks because even if you have no earthly blessings, you still have every spiritual blessing in Christ. You are still saved from hell. It's been given to Jesus and you've been given his heaven. And just like Mike spoke of and Samwise so ele elegantly told us, there is a happy end for you because of what Christ has done on the cross. So no more grumbling, no more griping, no more disputing. Instead, quote, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. And you will find that being thankful is good for you and is good for others. Let's pray. God, we thank you once again to have the opportunity to spend this brief time together in fellowship with like-minded brothers and sisters, singing worship together, which is a joy to us, and remembering the benefits we have in Christ, and sitting under your word and learning from it. These in themselves, if we had not one other earthly blessing, would be enough to elicit from us eternal gratitude. And that and nothing less than that is what we offer to you. Please help us to be lights who are grateful and not grumbly in our world. Deliver us from the temptation to grumble. Forgive us when we fail. And help us to progress in our light and luminosity so that others may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven.